Francis. Hi again, everybody. If you missed the welcome from me, lovely to see you all, um, especially those who are, who are new and, and visiting. Uh, it, the world is in a mess, we know, we know that, but I, I think we're being encouraged collectively, uh, just for those who are new, just kind of catching us up with the, the bigger sense of where we are as a family. We've been, it's as though we've been invited, isn't it, to think a bit more about the God whom we believe in and not to make too many assumptions and to, and to lean in. There's always that invitation, but over this part, these, these past few weeks and months, specifically, we've, we've had this focus on the fear of the Lord. Are we really sure that we know the Lord uh, in all his aspects? And, and that's been precious for us. And, we're, and, and we've, we've been saying, haven't we, that uh, it's not that that's ended. Uh, that is not just a theme that happened has gone and now we're on to the next thing. And it, I think it is being carried through. I love that Hills directs our attention to where is your gaze fixed in that scripture from 2 Corinthians 4. And so these two Sundays, last Sunday, this Sunday, kind of continue that to some extent. Where is our, in the big picture of things where we can get so caught up in, in, in life now, where is our big focus? Who is God to us? What's he calling us to to in terms of our relationship with him and then our relationship with the wider world. Uh, and clearly as we come towards Advent, Christmas, again, where are we fixing our gaze will be such an important focus for us, won't it? So it hangs over all of that and pray for us as we think about you know, next year and, and, and where these kind of themes take us, where the Lord is taking us. We want to be those, don't we, collectively who are in step with the Spirit. And so... Uh, Heaven uh, has been uh, a word over these, these couple of Sundays. That's a big uh, area to fix our gaze on too, isn't it? Have you ever um, been moved to describe something as heaven on earth? Think of the last time you described something as heaven on earth. I wonder what that was. A romantic sunset, perhaps, heaven on earth. Your favorite pudding, heaven on earth. <laughs> Arsenal. Winning the, winning the double all those years back, heaven on earth in that moment. Well, it turns out that the, the reliable Mr. Google can help us out once again, because heaven and earth does, in fact, exist. It's in Los Angeles. And uh, no, 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 I don't know why you're laughing. And I quote, I quote from their website, uh, we extend life-saving support to those most in need. Our commitment is unwavering. The mission of heaven on earth is to transform the lives of homeless cats. I, I kid you not. We're thinking a bit more about heaven, uh, including heaven on earth. Big thing to have a go at. But um, I, had, I had an even bigger thing. I had a, an exercise at the start of my Vicar Factory uh, training, and they gave us a bunch of uh, bits and bobs of materials of Lego and pipe cleaners and sellotape and newspaper and blue tack and balloons and that sort of stuff, put us in groups of three or four and said, make a model that describes the relationship between heaven, earth, the cross, the church, and the kingdom of God, <laughs> and then present it to us. <laughs> and um, yeah, I could go in a mischievous direction with that, but I won't. Um, and so you can imagine it was actually impossible, because uh, of course, and they knew that it was impossible. What the, what the purpose of it was to get us talking. In fact, I don't think my group made a model at all. We were so busy arguing about those things. I'm not sure we actually even got to present something. Um, but it, it, it got us brains scratching, doesn't it? And there's lots around this area to wrap our heads around that actually we can't in the end. There is mystery attached to it. Jesus didn't present us with a neat message. The Bible doesn't direct us to a neat passage which just you know, kind of explains all of those things that we may have um, uh, questions around. But as Mark Twain said, it's not the bits of the Bible that I don't understand that I find hard. What I find hard is obeying the bits that I do understand. 
I think that's quite a sensible thing to say, and it's not that I, uh, we want to be anti-intellectual in any sense. We need to do the head-scratching. We need to do the scholarly work. The Bible is simple enough for a child. Of course it is, but profound enough for the scholar, and that really matters. But for today's purposes, we're kind of just peering into that box which contains the, the assortment of those things, including words like heaven, and pulling out a few pieces that are, that are clear and, and, and um, now is not the moment to get too bogged down in, in, in some of the more complex things, although I encourage us to keep reading on this. So here are some really big headlines just to, keep, to get us going for now. Really big headlines, biblical headlines that we know are true. The world as we know it is going to end. The world as we know it is going to end. I think there's a few slides on this, Jonathan, thanks. We don't know when. Jesus is coming back. So what? So now what? And we're probably all going, well, there's a lot, there's a lot more that we could say, but, but at least we can say those things, and it matters. Matthew 24, Hills directed us to this uh, last week as well. It's not an easy chapter of the Bible. You may want to have it open. I'm going to refer to it quite a bit, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's quite long. But if you've got Matthew 24 up, that will be helpful. There's a few verses coming up on the screen. The world is going to end. Jesus is talking. He left the temple. He's walking away. His disciples come up to him, call his attention to the buildings and, and say, do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And then as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, a bit later, the disciples come privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, the end of the world? So there's this Mount Everest coming, gigantic kind of climax to the world as we know it. But like all big mountains, there are some foothills that precede the big mountain. And Jesus says, here are some of the foothills. The temples, throughout this chapter, the temple's going to be trashed for a start, verse 2 which it was by the Romans 40 years later, 70 AD, and then completely by the Turks after that. God is no longer located in a Jewish temple. He's going to be located in the hearts of, of his people by his spirit. Verse 6, he says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, some of the signs. This may be familiar to us. Verse 7, there'll be famines, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be great natural and man-made disasters. Verse 9, people who follow me will have a hard time. Not many years later, those people were being thrown to the lions. Follow down the centuries, God's people have always had a really hard time. Uh, Open Doors are about to publish their list of, of the, uh, the most per places where it's the most, you're most persecuted as a follower of Jesus in the world. They, they publish that every year. As you know, North Korea is still top. But last year, over 5,000 people were killed for their faith in Jesus in Nigeria alone. They reckon that 15 people on average per day in 2022 were killed specifically and precisely because they claim the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord. People are going to have a hard time. Verse 12, the increase of wickedness. Well, it's not difficult for us to, to nod our heads to that one, isn't it? Kind of moral decline in all kinds of ways, erosion of, of godly values in the culture and other sorts of things around the world. Verse 24, another sign, there'll be demonic imposters, says Jesus. There'll be false saviors, false messages, but powerfully deceptive ones. They won't be obvious. And why is Jesus telling the disciples, now telling us these things? Why, is it for information? No, it's for action. It's not just to, to, to fill our heads with something. It's that we'd respond to something. To do what? Well, to prepare his followers, to pre prepare people, so that we won't be caught, caught by surprise by these things, by the signs of the world come towards uh, the end times, things coming towards a close. We won't be surprised by persecution. We won't be surprised by deceptive teaching. We won't be surprised by 
the crazy but still fashionable idea that somehow following Jesus is, is kind of comfortable and, and convenient and, you know, if we follow him, our troubles go away. We won't be surprised by the increase of evil or distorted ideologies or bankrupt values or corrupt culture, etc., etc. We won't be surprised by these things and we'll be more prepared for them, for sure. And surely it's also to encourage this kind of thing, to gather around him, to gather around truth, to equip ourselves, to be equipped by his Holy Spirit, to be strengthened, to be fortified as the people of God for all of our days on earth, that we'd be those who are faithful to love and to serve him according to his will, proclaiming and demonstrating the things of God, being faithful to the commission that he's given us. Surely, all of those, that's why he would tell us those things, just to, to prepare us and to help us. And then Everest comes, verse 14, Matthew 24, the end will come. Verse 27 onwards, it's described quite dramatic. It'll be universal, verse 31, and then summed up in this incredible statement, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, says Jesus. Told you we're on on big, big ground this morning. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's all going to end. But immediately brings us back to earth, verse 36. Here's the second bit. No one knows when. You don't, says Jesus. I don't, says Jesus. The angels don't, but only the Father does, who's in heaven. About the hour or day, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. And then he gives a few little images to describe, to kind of reinforce the idea. It'll be like a a surprise flood. It'll be like a midnight burglary. It'll be like the sudden return of an absentee landlord, those kind of images. You just don't know when it's going to happen. Hasn't stopped people going overboard, of course, down the ages, trying to work out, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to work out exactly when it is. All these kind of people say, it's going to be then, it's going to be that year, that year, that year. And, and so far, it, it, they've all been wrong because Jesus says, you won't know. 2 Peter 3 uh, is a chapter that talks about this too. Peter says, in the last days, scoffers will come. They'll scoff and following their own evil desires, they'll say, where is this coming that he promised? And we know something of that, don't we? The cynicism of the age, it's easy uh, in, in this kind of arena for the scoffers to emerge both outside and inside the church. And all of that kind of contributes to the reality, which kind of suits the enemy, frankly, it plays into his deceptive schemes to distract the people of God, to sidetrack us about all of this and kind of switch us off to this enormous reality because it's a bit brain-stretching. We're not, we can't quite figure it out. So, hey, it's much easier just to kind of focus on the here and the now. That's the reality. And even to end up thinking that the grave is a a full stop rather than uh, the comma, if you like, or the colon, that it really is. Number three, Jesus is coming back. The world will end. We don't know when. Jesus is coming back. Verse 44, Matthew uh, chapter 24, the Son of Man, that's the way he referred to himself, will come at an hour when you don't expect him. He said it, it'll happen, but to what extent Do we believe it sitting here right now? And what effect does that have on us? And so the last headline, so now what? That's what we're interested in then, isn't it? So now what? What's the, what's the, what follows in the light of these huge, huge certainties from from the lips of Jesus himself? Verse 44, so you too must be ready. Hills was speaking on this last Sunday evening. She quoted a favorite film in our family, Johnny English, probably know it. Jesus is coming, you know the next line, look busy. Well, we're pretty, we're pretty confident about the first half of the, of the statement. Um, the second half is up for debate. It depends what we're busy doing, doesn't it? Uh, and in that excellent talk last Sunday evening, 
uh, Hills was referring to that story about the wise and the foolish virgins, those who, who had oil in their lamps and those who, who, who weren't attentive to that, in getting in readiness for whenever the bridegroom might return. Strange kind of image to our ears, but she was exploring that and explaining and help us to see how the, the oil of the Holy Spirit cultivating intimacy with Jesus, leaning into him, fixing our eyes on him, developing, growing by the power of the Spirit, our relationship with him is at the core of positioning, both in and of itself is the right thing to do, but also positions us for everything else. It positions us for the so what and the now what and what do we do and how do we do it. And I'm not going to go over what was said in, in, in that message or indeed in, in Andrew's in the morning, excellently explaining more about the, the concept of heaven. But just some practical realities for us today, looking in different directions. First, do you look forward to it? I ask myself this question regularly, and I don't want to assume that I know the answer. Are you somebody this morning sitting there looking forward to all that lies ahead by way of Jesus coming back and the end of the world and what follows? Bonnie Prince Charlie, they were waiting for him to return to Scotland, 1744, according to my uh, historical research. And they sang a song which went, until he comes. They got on with doing stuff. They did the things that Scottish people do while they're waiting for something. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Richard can tell us. But, but their song was, until he comes. They were constantly had this... They're looking forward, looking forward in readiness. Well, in a way, we sing our songs, and we, you know, we, 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 I'm sure the Scots were drinking something. I don't want to make the wrong comparison. We've been, we've been sharing communion. Until he comes. Advent is that season two, looking forward. 2 Peter 3 says it three times. Look forward, <clears throat> verse 11. Live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Verse 14. Friends, since you are looking forward to... This, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace. The last verse in the whole book seems to be one that I and others ignore quite often. It's the last prayer, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. The end of the whole book is the final words in the book. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you pray that prayer? How often do you pray that prayer? And with what faith and with what heart and with what conviction? I find myself challenged by these things. But why look forward? Because... At the wrapping up of all things, the Lord will establish fully and finally his kingdom, new heaven, new earth. I don't know what the details exactly of what that means, but he says it, where there will be no more death, no more suffering, no more grieving, no more crying, no more tears, no more things that make our, our hearts ache, only peace and only joy and only abundance, and where the best day on earth will still be less good than the worst day in heaven. That is the reality ahead of us for the family of God. Do we look forward to it? Are we praying that? We're to look lively in being faithful to the commission now, faithful to his mission for us. Why are we not in heaven with the Father now? Do you ever ask yourself that? If the world is so broken and he's, gathered, he's gathering his family, why aren't we there now? Well, it's because the mission's not complete, isn't it? isn't it? So we're to look lively in, in that mission because there's still work to be done, partnering with the Holy Spirit in helping to gather the family from every tribe and nation. And there's an urgency then about that because we don't know when. And there's Matthew 24 again. The king is coming, but he's coming as judge, not just as king. Judge of every person ever. Everybody will be judged there and then on the basis of what they believe and do with Jesus here and now. 
Not on the basis of bank accounts, we know that, or behavior, how good or bad, or rich or poor, or any of that, what we achieve, what we don't, just on what we do with Jesus. Did we receive him as Savior? Did we acknowledge him as Lord? That's the judgment. It's coming. We need to look lively in mission. We can't borrow somebody else's faith or lend our faith to somebody else. It doesn't work like that. God has no grandchildren, as they say. But there will be a judgment. There will be a separation. 2 Peter 3, set that same chapter, God not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But we, the church, we're the, we, the family, we're the agents of the gathering, the primary means that he's chosen to gather those who need saving. So there's urgency. We need to look lively. Three, because of his return, we look differently at today. Again, it shouldn't need saying, but it's so healthy to to be reminded of this. There's there's such great reassurance here, friends, isn't there? There is such great reassurance that so many times in life where the prospect of what's coming makes, makes the now more bearable. Personally, I haven't had a baby, I haven't given birth, but I've observed somebody who has a few times, and I notice that there's, there's quite a lot of trauma and difficulty involved in that process. But there's, such is the looking forward to the joy that, that lies beyond, that that pain is, is, is endured, that, that difficulty is, is handled. I know that obtaining a, if I know that obtaining some kind of qualification is going to bring me a greater blessing, then it'll change the way that I approach the hard work necessary to do the qualification. In a midlife crisis, you might remember I ran the marathon a few years ago, and I didn't particularly enjoy training. In fact, I certainly didn't enjoy any of the training, but I needed to do the training. The thing that got me through the training, uh, mile after mile and aching limbs and all the rest of it, was the prospect of being able to complete a challenge that I felt the Lord had given me to do. Well, if there was ever a a perspective shaper, surely it's the prospect of eternity with the Father, isn't it? And yet, somehow, the world, the flesh, the devil, they seem to conspire to sort of downgrade that prospect. To make us doubt it, maybe, even ignore it at all, so that we become incredibly focused on the here and now in in a physical, material world as if here is sort of all there is and and our focus is just kind of temporal in in the here and the now, let alone the far side of the grave. Hills drew drew our attention to a verse which was in my notes right at the start. I didn't know she was going to do that. That verse in 2 Corinthians 4, where do we fix our gaze? Where do we fix our gaze? It seems that the early church, our forebears, had, had a much better handle on this than we do. We don't lose heart. Outwardly, we're wasting away, said Paul. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Because our light and momentary troubles, and don't forget what Paul's light and momentary troubles looked like. That was floggings and shipwrecks and prison and, you know, light and momentary troubles, he calls them. Ouch. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. How are we doing on that? How's our perspective on that? The perspective on the here and now. So if I was utterly and truly convinced in the core of my being that tomorrow we'd be in the presence of the Lord, in eternal glory, in the presence of heaven, beauty, peace, provision, way beyond our imagining, we would face today very differently. I'm convinced of that. We'd face all of that stuff. It's not to diminish the pain of today. Please don't hear that. The acuteness of suffering in the here and the now. But the perspective on that changes in the light of the there and then. C.S. Lewis, always good to quote C.S. Lewis, I often do. Without a glorious hope blazing in your heart, you will be crushed by the pain of the world. 
Most Christians have no solid grip at all on their future. They're fixated on the present, but we cannot truly live without a future. You must have concrete hopes, or they won't give you hope. And we who have Jesus Christ, we have the most concrete hope of all. My goodness, he expressed things well, didn't he? That's the Bible right there in, 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 in different kind of language. That's 2 Corinthians 4 put into the, the, the message of, of C.S. Lewis. Jesus is coming back, looking forward to it, looking lively in mission, looking differently at today. And then lastly, and I just want to dwell on this a bit more, looking to invest eternally now. We can only live in the present moment by definition. This is the only moment that we get to experience. A minute ago is now gone. The future hasn't quite arrived. So by definition, we can only live this present moment. And we don't know how long we've got. So what priorities are we being called to? What, how do you see that in the context of, of these, this massive eternity that we're, that we're thinking of? How do you see the present now? And how do you, you see the priorities for your time, your energy, your money, your resources, your prayer, all of those things? And the Bible, of course, encourages us not to put those into things that wither away, that things are only so, so here and now that, that, that they kind of go up in smoke, as it were. He talks about treasures in heaven, Treasure in heaven. Invest time, money, resources, prayer in things that will last, in things that have eternal value. In sowing, therefore, seeds of truth, in growing godly relationships, in raising Jesus-loving kids, your own or spiritual kids and youngsters, with, with, with a legacy of kingdom treasure, this hope that will, that will outlast our own lifetime here. And, and so... Uh, this idea that we have our, our head in the clouds, maybe, as, as a Christian clique, just kind of hanging around, singing our songs and waiting for heaven to come, pie in the sky when we die. It's so unrealistic. Again, C.S. Lewis again it says it like this. I love this. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism. We get accused of that, don't we? But it's not. Or wishful thinking. But it's one of the things that followers of Jesus do. And it doesn't mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. Just let that sink in a minute. Those who do the most, who achieve the most in godly ways, biblical ways, in this world, the present moment, are precisely the ones who have a really good grasp on eternity a really good grasp about, what, about heaven, about Jesus' return and what heaven on earth means. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. I find this hugely stirring. What kind of God do I believe in? What kind of eternity is, has any bearing on my life in the here and now? Again, 2 Peter 3, 11, what, being fruitful then in, in, in C.S. Lewis language, being effective in this world while we wait. What does it look like? 2 Peter 3, 11, it's the best summary for, for today's purposes. Live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. A holy and godly life is one It looks like the Son of God. It's one that looks like the life of Jesus Christ. It's, not com it's hard, but it's not complicated. One that is faithful to, to his manifesto, obedient to the assignments that he's given. What did he say? He gave many beautiful commissions. I'd love us to do a series one day on the various ways in which Jesus expresses his commission to his people. Well, here's one of them. As the Father sent me, so I send you. What does it mean? In the same way that the Father sent Jesus, 
as a human, as a, as a son, with the identity of son, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, in that way, so I send you. You've now become sons and daughters, same Holy Spirit, same empowering presence. In that way, I now send you. To do what? To destroy the works of, of the evil one. To heal the sick, to cast out demons, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to demonstrate it in action, and on and on. It's the same commission. It's not changed. And we have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had. As the Father sent me, so I send you. What does a holy and godly life look like? It looks like that. It looks like the life that Jesus led. Seek first the kingdom of God, he said. Matthew 6. And he told us to pray, Father, let your kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. Pray for this. Pray about this. And friends, when we pray, when we pray that, what we are not praying is only about, it'll, it'll all be, end, end the world now, Jesus, because we want heaven to start. I check this out. The kingdom of God uh, is, not of, is not the same, clearly, as, the he- as just heaven in the future. Every reference to the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to say they're the same thing, but for Matthew's purposes, writing to the audience that he did, a Jewish audience that had problems pronouncing the name of God, he called it the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. Close brackets. For the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven Every time that is uh, expressed in, uh, in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, is a plea for the Lord to move here and now on earth as it already is and will be perfectly in heaven, but now in this present time. So in heaven, how much sickness is there, as, as folks say? How much sickness is there in heaven? How many lives are there blighted by depression or loneliness or anxiety or uh, you know, demonic oppression or injustice in heaven? None. So as it is in heaven, Lord, so we pray it on earth is the prayer. And we take your commission seriously if we are those who are commissioned to be the agents of bringing his kingdom to bear, of bringing something of heaven to earth. Heal the sick, cast out demons. I remember somebody saying, I don't know if the Lord's calling me to be a teacher or a a business person or a nurse or whatever, and perhaps a bit bluntly, uh, the person said, well, do do whatever you like, but just make sure you heal the sick, cast out demons, proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. But should I be a business person or a a stay-at-home mum? I don't really mind, but just make sure you heal the sick, cast out demons, proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God, because that's the commission. Yes, in different ways. Yes, according to our, our unique personalities. It's not a one-size-fits-all, one but yes, it's something about what our lives look like, how, how, how Jesus-like do they look, but not just in character, surely too in action. Using everything that we've been given to achieve that, the truth of the Holy Scriptures and the reality of the empowering presence of the same Holy Spirit that Jesus was filled with. And friends, when it's hard, because I know what I'm saying we go, yes, but it's hard, Tim. It's hard. My life doesn't look like that. So, yeah, when it's hard and when our prayers don't seem to be answered, and frankly, when we don't see as much, nearly as much healing as we'd love to, and we're not quite sure, and there's, there's so much that is dysfunctional and so much that is broken and so many prayers that seem to go unanswered or haven't been answered yet, and therefore so much disappointment, just being real. All of that is true, isn't it? It is really true. However disappointing, however challenging at times, we are not at liberty to downgrade the commission. I just don't believe we are through, that, that in order to make this more palatable to us, we downgrade the bar that Jesus set. 
We need to be secure enough and to find ways with him of handling our disappointments, of recognizing our imperfections, of being incredibly pastorally sensitive and loving of one another. But we are not at liberty to say, he didn't mean that. And so we, we, have, we, we set such a low bar that we become, in C.S. Lewis's words, what? Ineffective. On earth, as in heaven, kingdom. Just a few, uh, just a very, very few practical questions then, just as I finish. And I know, I know these are challenging, but I don't really make apology for that, because I think we are secure enough when we think about it in our identity in the Lord. This is not a you know, p- personal, gosh, I'm a, I'm a worm, or, or the pastor making us feel guilty or anything like that. No, it's, it's God calling us to the more, calling us to, the, uh, to, to all that he has commissioned us to do, but given us tools to do it and to step into this side of our graves. So when did you last put a hand on a sick person and pray for healing? And if you're somebody who squirms at that and thinks, well, I don't know, I don't really know how to do that or not quite sure, but well, friends, we're a family together. We're about training. There's all kinds of ways that we can encourage each other in that. Let, let's, let's discover about that if we're nervous about this or, any, or anything else or we're not quite sure. It's part of how we, how, how we bless one another. But when did you last do that? Do you, do you want some training? Or, or how about listening to the Lord for prophetic words for others? When did you last do that? When did you last, um, I, I won't get, get a show of hands, but if I were to ask you, what are your spiritual gifts? If, if the Holy Spirit of God gives gifts to the church, charismata, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, to each one is given at least one manifestation, one gift of the Holy Spirit. If I would say, do you know what your, your spiritual gift is or your spiritual gifts are? Do you know what you've received from the Holy Spirit? I'm wondering how many hands would go up in the room. Well, if you're a follower of, of Jesus, would you agree with me that if he's given us gifts, not for our own sake, but for the building up of the body, for the exercise of, of this commission, it's good for us to know what they are and to receive them and know and then use them and develop them and grow them. So if you don't know what your spiritual gift are, could you find out? Would that be, you know... It's obvious. And let's go for it. And if you do, well, how's, how, how are you using your gift? How are you deploying your gift on earth as in heaven? Lord, your kingdom come in this way. These gifts are the power tools that, go, that the Holy Spirit of God has given. What's your current level of expectation in prayer? Quick, I know to, to survey our prayer life is always, a, is always to stave off feeling inadequate and useless. That would be my experience. But... Actually, leaving that nonsense aside, how, what is the level of my expectation in fair? What kind of prayers am I praying? Who am I praying for? How am I praying? What am I seeking for God to do? When you open your f- final, final question, this is about perspective. I've been talking about looking, looking in different ways. Our perspective shaped by the reality of heaven, living with the end in mind. And as kingdom people, I want to remind us of something about our identity. Somebody said it like this, when you open the curtains, if you do, or pull up the blind or whatever, each morning, and you look out over the world, do you tend to see the world and its problems and its challenges and its, its toughness and your own through the lens of the kingdom of man? Through the lens of, well, it all depends on, on human solutions and logic and politics and technology, yada, yada, those kinds of things. Is that the lens through which you look out most naturally? Or do we look out as we open the curtains through the lens of the kingdom of God? Through the lens of those who have been called to be sons and daughters of the king, who are seated, the Bible says, even in heavenly realms, who are citizens of heaven whom the Lord hasn't called home yet. And so do we see through that lens 
And yes, we see the same problems and the same issues and the same challenges in our life and in, in the world and everything around us, but we see with the filter of the kingdom of God that says, no, that, that, that heaven has something to bear here. The Holy Spirit has something to say about this. There are divine solutions. He is the God of the impossible. There are different possibilities when we pray and partner with the Holy Spirit. The Creator has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. Massive phrase. Don't completely know what it means. But it's a reality. He set eternity in your heart. We're eternal beings, not earthbound ones. As his followers, our citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. And he's coming back to take us there, to take us home. So all the more reason to be sold out for him here and now. All the more reason. That's what this is all about. Stirring us up in faith in faithfulness, praying, working now to see what? To see his kingdom come more fully. Because that's the commission on earth as it already is in heaven.